Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for being here. Uh, we're going to begin the book of Nehemiah. Uh, in the Jewish scriptures, we've taught, said before, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are the same book. Uh, but in our Bibles, they're separated. And you can see the very first line, Nehemiah 1.1. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And so the very fact that it begins, the words of Nehemiah, means they're not the words of Ezra. <clears throat> so it's fitting that it's a separate book. Now, Ezra's going to make an appearance here in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is going to continue the work. Uh, we've got uh, 458. We've got Ezra being sent back and convincing Artaxerxes to send him back to teach the law of Moses, the law of the people you know, the law of the Jewish people, and also the law of the Persians. In 445 B.C., and you can see that in the uh, same first verse, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Keslev. Now Keslev is uh, the winter. It's, it's uh, November, December. Uh, in the 20th year, I was in Susa, uh, the citadel. And the 20th year, that would be the 20th year of Artaxerxes, he began reigning in 465, and so 20 years later would be 445. Now, I've got listed here just a few things just to kind of let you uh, uh, get a feel for it. Well, I'm going to get some more maps. Here you can see a map right here, uh, and I, I'm, I've got to get a few more details I, I've been working on. But you can see Susa, that's where they're at right now. That was where they spent the winter. It's 150 miles from the Persian Gulf. It's a plain. But also notice Ecbectana. That was also where a citadel is. And then, of course, Babylon uh, there. And, and they are in Susa. Ezra came from Babylon. Uh, Nehemiah is going to come from Susa. Susa is also the place where uh, the book of Esther takes place. And it is uh, where Daniel finds himself in the middle of a vision. So Daniel must have been in Babylon or Ecbectana, but he finds himself in a vision in Susa, and we'll, we'll mention that again later. But as we look on this chart here, you can see Darius, well, you know, Cyrus sent the people back. Cambyses, his son, let you know, things continue. He had problems with Egypt, went down, and he died on his way back. There's a little bit of a rebellion there, taking over the throne. Darius uh, becomes the, the king, one of the generals, becomes the emperor, and he's the one that gets the temple restored. And the Jews have favor throughout the reign of Darius as they, they get back to working on the temple. The prophets show up, and Darius gives them permission. I'm going to show you a verse that we've looked at already in, in Ezra chapter 4, where the first year of Xerxes, uh, the opposition in, in Israel, uh, it would be the Samaritans, made a plea for Xerxes to put a stop because the Jews started on the temple, finished the temple by 516, and then through the rest of Darius's reign, they continued to freely work on the city. Now, they didn't get very far, but the people of the land didn't like it. So when Darius dies, they go to Xerxes and ask for permission. They send a letter. So I'll show you the letter again. And it doesn't appear that he does anything because it just kind of continues. And then when Artaxerxes becomes the king, we'll look at that again, they send him a letter, and Artaxerxes says, yes, yes, stop this madness. Now, they're sending that letter in his first year. We're going to look at the verses here in Ezra again. 
in 465, and Artaxerxes, of course, is going to say, yes, no, we're stop, no more building. I, I've got to get this thing under control. Because Xerxes, his father, had been assassinated by one of the, 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 his, his chief man, his guy that's in charge of his, the palace bodyguard. It'd almost be like Nehemiah. It, it was, as far as him being, he's going to be a cupbearer. We'll talk about that. But it one of, it'd be like Daniel assassinating Nebuchadnezzar or Nehemiah assassinating Artaxerxes. That's how Xerxes, Esther's husband, was killed in his bedchamber in his own private room, was killed along with his son, who was going to be the first one, the one that was supposed to rule with him, was killed. And Artaxerxes inherits that kingdom in 465. And so here we've got here some, some notes on page 1. 465, another brother named Histaspes revolted in Bactria. And that's Bactria. If you see where Susa's at, and just go further to the, the, the east, it, it's in India. It borders on India. It's south of the Caspian Sea. But his brother, Histaspes, in 465, his father Xerxes has just been killed, along with his oldest brother Darius, been killed in the palace by the people in the house. He inherits the throne. His brother rebels, wants the throne himself. Now, I will say this. Again, this would be, you'd have to get more into history and, and the politics of the Persian Empire. <clears throat> but if you remember Xerxes, uh, even Daniel prophesied that after uh, four more kings will arise, and then one of them will stir up the kings of the West. And that's Xerxes. So he said there's going to be four more kings. The fourth one is going to stir up. And Xerxes, as you know, the book of Esther begins with him showing off his military, getting everybody fired up. They're going to march and take Greece. Greece has kind of come across into their territory. They're going to take that territory back, go across into Greece, and uh, continue to expand the Persian Empire up into Europe. And so he does that. And so he started a war. Uh, it would be... Uh, oh, <coughs> I, 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 I want 478 on here, it looks like, but I want to say it was more like, oh boy, the net dates, are, I, I'm missing the date. I've got it on here somewhere. Yeah, see on here it says, the Athenians had been at war with Persia since Xerxes had invaded Greece in 490 B.C. And that would be, I'm not sure why I've got that number one of my numbers is wrong. But nonetheless, Xerxes had gone across. Whole point, way off subject. The whole point, Xerxes was at war with the Persians, and things were in kind of a turmoil. And if you get into the politics, the person that assassinated Xerxes, some would say, saved the Persian Empire. Because Xerxes was just expanding, and he was at war, and wasn't logically handling his job. And so by assassinating him... It forced him to find a different ruler. Artaxerxes' son is going to reign for 40 years. And so, and again, it, it's a time of turmoil. But nonetheless, that's two sides of the story. His father got assassinated. He's got to be careful. But also, maybe it, politically, it was a good thing that they got rid of him because he would have drove the empire into the ground, None, not supporting assassinations. That's just what the history books would say. Nonetheless, that's 465. His brother leads a revolt against him. He's got to put that down. Then five years later, 460, the Egyptian ruler in Aris 
led a nationalistic revolt against Artaxerxes. That's, oh, let me see if I can spell the name here. Uh, I-N-A-R-U-S. And there's a seal. I've got an image of a seal. You know those little seals? They're about this big, and they're engraved all the way around. They're, they're a cylinder. And then they'd roll them in clay for their signature. Uh, they'd wear them around their necklace. They'd be like a, a, some kind of a, or they'd be in a ring, and you could roll it with a ring. That's a cylinder seal of Artaxerxes executing Inaris, the Egyptian leader who started the revolt. Uh, that's Artaxerxes executing. He was actually, uh, it, when this revolt is put down, this leader of the Egyptians is taken to Susa and crucified in Susa. Uh, but nonetheless, in 460, Inaris uh, led a nationalistic revolt, and then in the Athenians come alongside. Athenians are uh, Greeks. They contributed 200 triremes, and the triremes are battleships. They have the oars. Yeah, best, best example pops in my head is Ben-Hur, but that's, you know, that's, that's Romans. But they'd have the triremes, have the oars out the side, and they could ram into other ships. And the, and the, and the Greeks had kind of built up a navy uh, with the suggestions of one of their generals because they wanted a navy to fight against, in the Mediterranean Sea, against the approaching Persians. And they built themselves up quite a naval fleet with these triremes. These battleships had a big wooden head on it. They could run them into, into ships. And Anyway, they sent 200 of them to uh, Inaris in, uh, in Egypt, and uh, they won a battle. They drove Persia out. And so that was going on. Uh, and in 455, right here, that Egypt's revolt was put down. That, that revolt was over. So they established that peace. But it was a five-year process, and it led to some up being upset. Then, right here, 458, that is... Uh, I've got those turned around. You see that? i got those turned around. 458, Ezra is sent back. Why did I get those turned around? I know, because I was rushing. Uh, in 448, uh, this is interesting, the satrap, or the governor of the satrap, or the province, uh, Trans-Euphrates, or Syria, uh, named Mega, Mega Bizus, uh rebelled against Artaxerxes. So over here, if you come across the Trans-Euphrates up in Syria, Damascus, Ribla, that area, he, he rebels, so Syria rebels against Artaxerxes, and that is resolved. And then in 445, that is where our book begins. Nehemiah is going to be uh, in Susa. His brother, it's his brother Hanani, Hanani, is going to arrive from Jerusalem. So from Jerusalem, and again, you see these guys are, are just jetting all over the country. Again, Persians had great roads, great communication, and we can jet all over the world, but if you're jetting all over the world today, uh, you're going to have to be, ha, you know, have some, some you know, cash. You're going to have to have some freedom, some ability to travel. And, uh, you know, we can go on vacation here uh, in our time, but to get, make this trip to Susa, they've got good roads, but there's, he's not just buying a ticket flying to Susa. He's, it's going to take weeks, months, and, and he's leaving some responsibility going over to Susa, and, and Nehemiah is going to meet his brother. And again, it is literally his brother. It's possible uh, 
the Ecbectana uh, papyri. Now, if we, not Ecbectana, um, Elephantane. There's, I looked that word up, how to pronounce it. It's where the, the Jews settled. You see Thebes go south, further south on the Nile River. It's where the Jews ended up settling after uh, Jer- they took Jeremiah down to Egypt. And in their papyri, there's a mention that a, a man by the name of Hanani, after the time of Nehemiah, is the ruler in charge of Jerusalem. So this, this brother that comes from Jerusalem and gives Nehemiah the report may be uh, the one that follows Nehemiah in his leadership. We'll hear more about him later. But anyway, that's this condition that we've got right here of this turmoil going on, revolt. And uh, I would say it would be interesting to do this right now. Go to the very back page of the notes, page 6. Um, <clears throat> the very last line, you're going to see the report in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Verse 4, Nehemiah is going to start fasting and mourning. And then verse 5 through verse 11, the rest of the chapter, is his prayer. We'll break that down next week. It's, it's his prayer that he's going to pray. But the last part of that, that last verse, verse 11, it says, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, it's a, it's a minor comment. I'm the cupbearer to the king. I mean, it's like I waited on the king's table. You know, I worked on the staff in the palace. But, but we know it means much more than that. First of all, king is this guy right here, Artaxerxes, who's going to reign for 40 years. He's got all this probably for, for 20 years now. He's been putting the kingdom back together. He's going to continue to rule for another 20 years. His father had been killed by a man just like Nehemiah, along with some people within the, in the palace. And now Nehemiah says, after all these things, I was a cupbearer to the king. And here is some information about on page 6. And again, you know this. If you've ever heard Nehemiah taught, they're going to say stuff like this. Um, But the word cupbearer is from the Hebrew word masqua, uh, which literally means one who gives something to drink or one who gives someone something to drink. That's what the word means. It means I give him something to drink. So he was in charge of bringing him drinks. Uh, But in the Jewish book Tobit, chapter 1, verse 22, it mentions a cupbearer. It says, now, a high car was cupbearer, keeper of the signet. And now the signet is, uh, it's the seal. Just like we saw that on the front page, there's that seal of Artaxerxes. Uh, now, who it belonged to, we don't know, but it's Artaxerxes executing this guy or capturing him. Again, this guy ended up being crucified in Susa, this Egyptian leader. Um, so we're not sure who it belonged to, the signet ring or that signet seal. But you do the same thing on a ring. Uh, you could have a little stone with a very detailed engraving on it and have a hole bore through it. And then that signet ring, you could, you could roll the stone. You could have the stone cover up the, the part that had the impression and just have a little stone ring. When it came time to seal a die, you could take the ring off, flip it around, put it back on, press it into the clay, take it off, put it back, and it looks like a ring. That's called the signet ring. And in this case, the cup bear, a high car, had the signet ring of the king. Now, they have found uh, no signet, no, no, no seal of, of Hezekiah, uh, but they've, they found 
tons of signatures, or what we call bula, that have sealed documents, and they have found uh, maybe five, ten Hezekiah bula that have been sealed with, a, it, belong, it says belonging to Hezekiah, and it, it would be his signet ring, but they're not all the same one. There were several of them. They can tell which one. Sometimes they can find matches from the same signet ring. But even, for example, Hezekiah didn't have like, well, who knows how many he had. But it's possible that he would have handed out signet rings to people with authority to sign whatever kind of documents they're in charge of signing. And so the cupbearer, which is not unusual in the ancient world, that someone else had the authority with the signet ring, would, in, in this case at least, uh, had the signet ring, he could sign documents for the king. And in charge of administration of the accounts, like who brought what in, who, who was spending money. I mean, he was the bookkeeper. Uh, and more than the bookkeeper, he had to sign off, probably with his signet ring, on everything that was purchased. Um, that's this individual in the book of Tobit that we're referring to. For Esher Hardin had appointed him second to himself. So this cupbearer in the, the book of Tobit, a Jewish document, was second under the king, had the signet ring of the king, and would sign documents, and was in charge of the accounting of all the money that was being spent. Again, the king is in charge, but he's not going to sit and sign all the documents. Think of anybody, a CEO, think of someone that's a superintendent of a school. They're not necessarily going to touch every document, but they're going to have people doing it for them. And of course, those people have to be responsible. Otherwise, heads are going to roll. But anyway, Nehemiah is the cupbearer. So get out of your mind that he just comes in and is a, a, uh, a lowly servant bringing him in, you know, drinks and then cleaning up the table afterwards when the king is gone. It's very likely he was, you know, very close to the king, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to give any indication on how much power he had, uh, except here's a list of some things. Number A, Nehemiah would have, 3A, been well-trained in court etiquette. If you're going to move around this king, uh, your, your etiquette, you're going to have to be able to perform, act, speak, walk, hand motions correctly. Uh, right away, I think of myself that I, I, I could not do that. I mean, I would have to go through some thorough training to properly stand up straight, keep your shoulders back, make eye contact when you talk, use shorter sentences that are complete. Uh, and there's images, and I don't have any up here, but you can see them. And you may have seen it when you look at old uh, reliefs that are in stone in palaces or on monuments. They'll be like the king sitting on his throne, if it be Babylonian or Assyrian, even Assyrian. And there'll be someone standing in front of them. And uh, they, they, they may be a very high-ranking official. They may not just be a bunch of you know, lowly people. The king's not going to be meeting with a bunch of peasants unless they're, well, even if they're conquered, he's not going to meet the peasants. He's going to meet the leaders that he's conquered before he cuts their head off. But uh, they're doing this in those images. And I, for, I just figured it out this last few months. But I've seen it for years. They'd always be standing with their hand like this in front of the king. And, or, you know, in the, in the murals, they'll be standing up like this, like, what, what, what are they doing? And I finally, you know, I just happened across what they were doing. They're covering their mouth not, so as not to offend the emperor uh, with their breath. 
Now, you know, I, now we go down the whole road of bad breath. But, I mean, we live in a, well, we got a dentist right here. There we go. But, you know, we have, we have hygiene. We brush our teeth. We have mouthwash. I mean, but you go back to the ancient world, uh, the, you know, we could probably ask Dr. Long when the toothbrush was invented. I mean, how, I'm not, do you have any idea? I mean, they didn't have, I mean, our tech, what? You, you had to know at the gate out of school. <laughs> but I'm sure Artax Xerxes didn't have a toothbrush. I don't know. Uh, but they probably had very, you know, offensive breath. And it just got, you got something you got used to. I mean, we've talked about that before, you know, showering and, and stuff. In the modern world, in my world, it's, you know, shower quite a bit. I mean, like several times a day. But nonetheless, uh, court etiquette. Nehemiah would have had a been someone that knew how to present himself in front of the king. Number two, uh, good-looking and perfect in appearance. Uh, you didn't come into the king's presence if you didn't look good, if you were not pleasant. Uh, that's why he, the king is going to notice, as we, when we get into this, that Nehemiah is not happy. He says, you seem like you're in a bad mood. We'll read that here in, in a couple weeks. We don't have class next week. Okay, I'm going to be gone next week. We'll have the following week. Um, so he would have had to be good-looking and perfect in appearance. Would have to, oh, watch this. Now, this, this will rattle the Christians, okay? <laughs> this rattle, it's like, deal with it, folks. He's the wine bearer. In fact, right here, we've, ta- we've pointed out many times, that's Artaxerxes' wine bowl. It's, a, it's about this big. There's a whole, I think there's four of them in the British Museum. And it says, Artaxerxes, king of kings, uh, son of Xerxes, son of Darius, you know, king of the world. It says, it's in cuneiform writing all the way around. It's a silver wine bowl. So, Think about this. If he's bringing the wine, and this is, this is just in ancient documents, this, this is the history. If the cupbearer brings the wine, he doesn't, he doesn't just bring the wine. He's the guy behind the scenes tasting the wines, deciding which one does Artaxerxes want. So he's, he brings this wine in. If it's putrid, it's like, I don't know, it's just what they gave me. It's like, well, who's choosing this stuff? Nehemiah would have to be not just the wine bearer, he's the wine taster, the one who says no. You think, see those ever seen a movie or been around a chef or something, and they're back there, they're, they're tasting the wine, says this will go with this meal. And when, they, when you order a meal, you get like the wine, the meat, everything comes together as a package. The chef has decided what's going to go together. That would, part of Nehemiah's job would be to taste the wine and decide what are we going to bring in to Artaxerxes, who is... I mean, very, very particular about court etiquette, bad breath, good manners, uh, and now the wine. That's a lot of responsibility. You start bringing bad wine, uh, well, he'd lose his job. So, C, Nehemiah would have to know how to taste and select wine. The Babylonian Talmud, it says. Now, that's the, the Jews, after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, they wrote down all their teaching their oral teaching, they wrote it down. There's two different places it came from. One came from uh, Samaria, the other came from Babylon where they wrote these things down. But, and I got a copy of it, it's just several books. Uh, it's beyond, I, I've got it, but it's not like I've ever read it. <laughs> but the Babylonian Talmud says, the wine belongs to the master, but credit for it is due to his cupbearer. And so Nehemiah, if Nehemiah, if Artaxerxes liked his wine, Nehemiah had tasted it and approved of it before it came to Artaxerxes. And, and just think about that. I mean, you're not just bringing wine to a table, table 37 in the restaurant. You're bringing wine to the king, and you're doing it often. <coughs> and next one, 
He would have had been trusted with the king's life and privacy, and his father had been killed by a man just like Nehemiah. And maybe for the benefit of the kingdom, that's another debate. And the last one, he would have had great influence determining who had a meeting or audience with the king. Meaning to get to Artaxerxes, you would have to go through Nehemiah. He may have the signet ring. He would be uh, scheduling the meetings. He'd be scheduling the, uh, who appeared before the king. We would say he would be the press secretary. He'd be out front answering the questions. Artaxerxes doesn't have time for this. Nehemiah, what's going on in the palace today? Nehemiah would give a, anyhow, I, that's not on my notes. That's not any research I found. I'm just saying that's the kind of guy he would have been. So that is, when it talks about Nehemiah, that is the cupbearer. And who is he a cupbearer for? Uh, this Artaxerxes, and you've got some pictures there on the front. So here we go. Some things about this. I'm going to begin on page one of the notes and just we read through the first three verses. Uh, the words of Nehemiah, the son of uh, Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Cheslev, December, November, December, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, 445 B.C., I was at Susa in the citadel, the winter palace on the plains in southwestern Iran today, 150 miles from the Persian Gulf. That Hanani, one of my brothers, and again, we're going to read that oh, brother in the faith, brother in the Jewish family, or brother uh, from the same mother. We're going to go with brother from the same mother. Uh, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. Now, Judah is a province. It's a Babylonian satrap. You're going to have the Samaritans to the uh, north. You're going to have Arabia to the south. You're going to have, uh, to the further north, you're going to have Syria. This was a special location. Small, we talked about how small it was, but it was a province under the Persian Empire. Now, Persians had trouble with Syria. They've had trouble with Egypt. So far, Judah has uh, been very, in a sense, submissive and cooperative. And coming up through Darius and Xerxes, the Persian kings have been very cooperative. It wasn't until Artaxerxes put a stop to it in 465 and says, stop. Because, again, he was, he was out of control. He was having trouble with his brother. That gave encouragement to the Egyptians to rebel. The, the Greeks are supporting him. They're trying to make Persia fall. And then... Eventually, uh, Syria is going to rebel again. So nonetheless, that's the situation. He came from Judah. And I asked them, his brother and the other men who had come from Judah. So this would probably be some delegation. They're not, they're not I, I would doubt they're just vacationing. I would doubt they're just on a family outing. They're probably some delegation. This family of Nehemiah and Hananiah are probably upper class. They're probably well-trained. In fact, when we get into his, his discussion with Artaxerxes about his city, Jerusalem, he's going to say, why should I not be upset when the, sep the, the city of my father's sepulchers lie in ruins? Now, when we talk about sepulchers or graves, we're not talking about just, you know, tombstones and bodies stuck in the whole grave somewhere. We're talking about carved monuments, and his family, his, his fathers are in these potentially Again, upper-class Jews who were taken into captivity, who have risen up in the society, and now are working with Artaxerxes. So, again, Hanani, his brother, Nehemiah, that family, uh, 
Anyway, I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So the Jews that had escaped is, is referring to the Jews that had escaped the Babylonian captivity. I think it simply means they just escaped Babylon and they, they're exiles back in the land. This is, again, another way of saying it, the remnant. Those that are back pursuing the rebuilding of our country, our nation, the covenant that God gave us. Just like, no, I mean, he's going to refer to it in his prayer. Moses said, or Moses wrote, that, it, that God said, if the people disobey me, I'll disperse them. But when it's time to bring them back and they obey, no matter if they're scattered to the skies, I will find them and bring them back. The Jews at this time, and we saw it in Ezra's writing, no, that's why Ezra is so upset. Remember, we ended the book of Ezra, is so upset with the people intermarrying with the other cultures because God has finally shown us favor through these Persian kings after the Assyrians and the Babylonians. God has shown us favor and has brought us back. The very fact they're back in Jerusalem isn't just, well, that's the way things work out. No, it's not. Things don't, people don't get, their nations do not get overrun by another culture and then scattered to the winds and then they come back and rebuild from where they used to be. First of all, someone's already living there. I mean, the Jews had trouble with that themselves. They come back to Judea and there's already people living here. And, I mean, try that. I mean, try, try being a culture, again, we're about ready to try it ourselves, that just gets demolished and then you regroup and come back 100 years later and, and start up and rebuild where you were. No one has done that. That doesn't happen. Every nation that has gone through the four cycles is eliminated from history except the Jews. They came back from Babylonian captivity, got dispersed by the Romans in 70 A.D., and then 135 by Hadrian. And then in 1948, they come back to their homeland again, which uh, that's, that's divine. I mean, if you, want, if you say, well, is there any evidence of God? I mean, there you have it. Moses writing in 1400 B.C., describes what has happened two times historically to the Jews, and no one else, well, yeah, but that also happened to the, say, well, there's still Greeks today, or there's still Germans today, or there's still, yeah, but there's still Egyptians today. They're not the same, they've been intermarried. Just, there's people still living in the land of Egypt. There's still people living in these different countries, but they're not the same, same exact culture, the same exact genetics, and that's what we have here. So, that's when you talk about the Jews who had escaped who had survived the exile. This is the remnant that has come back, and they see themselves in the middle, especially with Ezra being there. You're in the middle of a great move of God rebuilding the nation of Israel. And then, of course, he asks, and concerning Jerusalem. How are the people doing, and how is the city? And they said to me, the remnant there in the province, Judah, who had survived the exile is in great trouble. They're back. The kings have shown them favor. God's hand is upon them, but they are hanging on by a thread. They've got the temple up and running. Great job. But they have no defense. The other provinces around are running all over them. They, they, they can't establish any kind of protection in, in the marketplace. They have no value. I mean, their city is, is in... We, we th think about this. Uh, we got a street in our neighborhood that they're, they're repairing. I'm glad they're repairing it. But what a, what a nuisance. You know, it's like they got barricades up. We've got to go around. In fact, here there's a sign up that says this road's going to be closed. Now, it's one thing for a highway to be closed. But imagine the road in front of your house for two blocks this way and two blocks that way is closed 
for two weeks. Oh, well, they're fixing the road. Yeah, where are you going to put your car? I mean, put it in the garage. We won't be able to get it out for two weeks. So you're going to park it where? I, you know, I, 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 we, we, go by, we run down that road, and we stop driving down it recently because we don't want to get in, in the way. But it's like, where are the, what are these people going to do for two weeks? The public works, the water, the highways, the roads. I mean, we, we take it for granted sometimes that if there's a hole in the road, soon someone's going to be by to fix it. Or if a, a stoplight, the stoplights. I mean, have you ever seen a stoplight you know, actually burned out. I mean, I, I can't think if I've ever, I, I know it has to happen, but a stoplight just burns out. And then, oh yeah, the stoplights are burned out. It's like, I've seen them go out because of the power. But someone keeps all this running. Jerusalem, in this case right here, they have no, they have no structure. I'll show you, their water system has collapsed. And I'll show you why. Uh, so they're in trouble, both politically, economically, city-wise. I mean, they say this, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, that took place... And again, this is... I mean, you've got to wrap your mind around this because we've seen Ezra's... You know, the people go back in in 538, then Ezra comes back and this in 530... Well, here, this is now... Let's say uh, uh, 586. This is now uh, 445. If I do this right, this should be, uh, yep, 141 years. This was Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, and he wasn't there himself. He was, he was still up at Carchemish up there. Um, but his general, uh, uh, Nebuzar Aden, uh, and they found his name on cuneiform, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he burnt the city. Now, again, we just see rocks today. But everything would have been covered with wood panels. Even the gates would have had some kind of wood panels, wooden doors, wooden beams. There would have been structure. Uh, and all that wood was burnt. So the gates are made of stone, but covered with wood beams, with wooden doors. And so when it was burnt... They're saying, and this is the case, 141 years later, you go to the walls are still torn down and the gates are still burnt. There's still ashes, uh, remains of, uh, and we talk about ashes, we're talking about layers of, of just debris that people just like either are going around, coming in through the gate, finding new, they have to do something. But this describes it. The remnant there is of the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, if you turn the page, oh boy, I wanted to point out a couple of these things out right here. I'll come back to it. This will be awkward. I should have done this earlier. But since we're talking about this, let's just keep going with this. What you see right there on page three, and I, this is important for me, for the book of Nehemiah, because in chapter 2, Nehemiah is going to go out on a night ride and look at the wall, and it identifies some places he goes. Chapter 3, it identifies gates all the, and sites all the way around the wall of Jerusalem, chapter 3, as they rebuild the wall. Then chapter 12, they're going to have a dedication, and they're going to have two groups go out the, 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 the valley gate. One's going to turn south, one's going to go north, and they're going to walk or march on the wall all the way around and then meet in the temple courts for a dedication of the walls that they've rebuilt in a little over 50 days. I mean, it's an amazing feat. 
And so it's fun to look at and, and see these locations on a map, and so I've got that coming. But if, you, if, if, if I can do this, I'm going to try, and I, I hope you don't mind. We've talked about it in the Jerusalem book. I've got more pictures there. But there is the, the Kidron Valley running this way. And that's, it's a deep valley. There's the Hinnom Valley running down and then meeting right here. The place it meets is, is near a, a spring called Enrogel. It's where uh, Solomon and sometimes kings were anointed there. It's a spring of water called Enrogel, not, not uh, the Gion Springs, Enrogel. It's in the, in the Kidron Valley. You can't see it today except you can see remains of the topography because you can feel the, the rise, in, you know, the, the hill and the, the valley. But there's what is called a central valley running right here like this. Now, this has been filled in pretty much. When you, when you walk the streets, you can see you kind of go down and come up. But it used to be a lot deeper. This is a rock ridge. This is the city of David. Uh, when David took the city, we're going to say something like this. This is a valley, so it's very low. It meets a valley, which is it's low. This is a valley, it's low. This is a rock formation, rises quickly out of the ground, big enough to build a city on, and it rises all the way up. This is Mount Moriah, this is the high spot, and then it's still, I say high spot, but it still continues to rise a little bit up this way. So when you come at Jerusalem from the north, you're coming kind of, you're on rock coming down into this place. This is, there's the Gion Springs are right here, a natural water spring. And, and the Gion Springs are going to be the reason the city is built right here. And go back to the book of Genesis. Abraham visited Melchizedek, and they probably met out here in the King's Valley because of the, the uh, Enrogel Springs, the Gion Springs. And the water would just bubble out of the ground here and water this area. So this was a very fertile part of the valley with rock coming up around it. So this is the city of David, uh, the rock right. This is steep. I can't explain, I can't express in a picture how steep that is. I mean, it's not like a cliff, but it's not a green pasture valley. Oh, the valley. It, it, it's not like you're going to walk out the slope. It like drops off. There's going to be terraces holding up this part of the city. Anyway, Solomon expanded it up and built a wall around this part because he's going to put the temple, 500 cubits right here. That's a perfect, per, supposed to be a perfect square. And on there, on the, the high spot of the rock right there, he's going to put the temple. That's where the Ark of the Covenant sat right here. So this is the high spot. You know the story. Assyrians show up, invade northern Israel. A bunch of Jews move south, fleeing the northern kingdom, and they start settling out here. This is the western because this is a valley. So the, this is Jerusalem, city of David. The Temple Mount, Jerusalem. Out here, there's a valley, and then there's another hill over here that's not part of Jerusalem. It's just the western hill. But the people started settling out here when they came from northern Israel. So Hezekiah builds a wall out and around and connects it right here. So there's the wall of Hezekiah. In fact, you can see part of this broad wall right here that's been excavated. You can see part of this wall right here. You can see the gates that were right here. You can see where the Babylonians fought here. Okay, you understand generally the idea, I, I hope. Because what takes place is they're going to attack Babylon in 586 B.C. When they finally decide to attack, they're going to attack from the north. 
So this took the blunt. This is where the seat, Romans did the same thing. 70, 69, 78, same thing. They're, just, they're coming. It's easy. You're not going to attack from the Kidron Valley. You're going to be like fighting uphill. You're not going to attack, you know, from this valley. You're not going to attack from the south. You're going to just come in from the north. This is where you can roll your siege engines in. Nonetheless, this wall up here, when Nehemiah gets there, or when Ezra got there, when they came back in 538, there's nothing there. I mean, that was where the battle happened. That's where the fall of Jerusalem happened. This wall out here, there's also a great battle scene right here at a gate that they found some arrowheads and different things like that. But this wall was tore down. It's not even, it's, it, this, is, this is rubble. This is just, this is the burnt city. When Nehemiah writes Lamentations and crying about the burnt city, this is it. This, this is where it was full of people. Gone. Uh, this is gone. Now, this, just so we see, this part of the wall, right, and we get into Nehemiah's account, they broke through here, they broke through here, the city was destroyed, this wall right here doesn't seem to have a lot of damage. It goes up, what we, we just talked about, it goes up real fast, and people are working in larger sections. When they start naming off people that are working, they're working like from here to here, from here to here, from here to here. Over here, they're working from here to there. Probably because, you see where it's kind of, it's inside the city. If you're in here, and this, they, they don't even mess with this. Nehemiah is going to come over here, and he's envisioning the city. And if, if you don't mind me doing this, they're just going to forget, forget, forget it. They're not even, that's just, that is still ruins until, I think it was like one 60, the Hasmoneans begin, well, probably 150, the Hasmoneans begin to resettle this. This becomes the priestly quarters in the New Testament. This is where the upper room takes place. This is where the rich people live. They lived on the, the, the urbans area over here, or the, if you want to consider that, that was expanded. Now, I want to talk about this right here. I've got a map on page three, and you can see, kind of see what I'm talking about there. Uh, on that map where it says the sheep's pool, that's the pool of Bethesda. Uh, but I've got it written right there on the top. Babylon had attacked with the siege engines from the north. This wall was gone. It's going to take the most work. And you're going to notice there's going to be a lot of towers built there. Even when Nehemiah, it's going to be fortified. Because they, if they ever fall again, they're going to fall from the north. Then I've got the wall going out and around the western hill. That's how it extends out to the Hinnom Valley. I've got a little that kind of erased a little bit. That's not going to be rebuilt. I've got it also says least damaged is going to be that part coming down uh, inside the city. They're right on the, you know, the side of the city of David. I've got over there where it says the Kidron Valley, right near the uh, Gion Springs, terrace collapse. Again, I don't want to rush ahead of this, but I'm going to. Nehemiah is going to prop. It appears he's staying in David's palace. Because he comes out what is called the valley gate right here on his night vision. is going to ride around the city like this. And when he get, and he's naming locations as he goes by. He's out by himself. Well, he's with a group of men with one animal. He's, only, he's got one animal, probably uh, a mule. Uh, because they don't want a bunch of animals. They just want anybody to know what he's doing. He, he didn't tell anybody. I just want to go out for a ride. You want to come with me? And he goes out and he's inspecting. He's riding apparently this mule. Probably not a horse. be too loud. And he goes out here by himself, and he gets right here. It says, when he got right there, my animal could not go through. He had to get off and go out into the valley and then walk up the Kidron Valley because this 
was a total wreck. And what we see right there is uh, probably the best thing to do first is if you look on page 5 at a picture. Um, the last picture on page 5, I took that picture looking down into the Kidron Valley. Bottom of page 5, I am standing right up here, right where the... St- I, I, I'm probably... Yeah, I'm standing right... I could be standing in the, in the palace of David right there. I could be standing right in what, the, what is remains of the palace of David, looking straight down at the Gion Springs, where the Gion Springs are. You can't see the water, but it would be that building. There's a little building. Look at that white roof to the right, the right corner. Then there's a little, like a little tin roof on there, if you can see that. That's the Gion Springs that's covered up now. Water is still flowing out of the Gion Springs. But you're looking into... The Kidron Valley, if you can see the white in the bottom of the valley there, that's the bottom of the valley. But please realize, that was, that was 2,000-something. That's 2,000 years after the Roman destruction, which was 600 years after the Babylonian destruction. That valley, if, if it's like anything else in Jerusalem or any place that's been excavated, it's been filled up. It's filled up. This valley, the central valley, is totally gone. Not totally. You can feel the, the, the slope when you walk through it. But this valley, it was deeper than this. And so and it came, the wall, you came right up here, and then you stoped down. And so what they would do on this side, they would build terraces. And, and, we, and we know this because it's been excavated. This was stone, to, to expand the city, they would put a terrace out here. And then fill it in with dirt. Then they'd build another terrace out here. Fill that in with dirt. And each terrace would support the other terrace. And so then you'd have like living spaces going on down. And so that is what you're looking at right there. If you look at the picture right above that on page 5, I am definitely in David's palace there. Looking down at, you see that is called the stepstone, or the, yeah, the stepstone structure. Um, that was probably built by the Canaanites. That was there. That could have been there when Abraham was there, or it was there when David. David conquered that city. That was not built, that was expanded on, but that was there holding up that side of the city by the Canaanites. Then if you look below that, you can see the re- a wall. There's a lot of details. And if you look straight across on page 4, at the top there, now I'm standing, I'm standing here looking at it like this in that drawing, and that's what you've got as far as the remains there. You see the stepstone structure, those little terrace coming down at the top of that line drawing? That, on top of page 5, I'm standing at the top looking down at it, if that makes sense. Are, are you following me on this? So this picture, this, this right here, this picture, that stepstone structure I'm standing on top looking down at, is right here. I'm looking at it right there in that drawing. And you can see, and this is what the, archeo- or, yeah, the archaeologists have uncovered. You've got houses there. Uh, uh, Hill's house, because they found his name in the house. You've got the burnt room over on the other side, and there was someone who was living there. You've got the Bula house. You know why they call it the Bula house? Because it was filled with hundreds of clay seals. Like what? Someone collected clay seals? No, it was, a, it was a library. It was a, a royal document, a house of documents that when the fires came, everything burnt up and the bula that had been sealed by a ring were just 
only they just were glazed with, they burnt like, you know, a clay pot, and they're, they're solid. And they was just full. They just picked them up off the ground. That's why they call it the Bula house. That right there is what was seen, what used to be structured living space right off the royal space. In fact, if, if you don't mind it, uh, I, don't, I can't see it in the drawing there. But they found, they found a stool. I mean, a, a stone stool that they, I mean, I could go into detail about it, but there, you can see it there in, in pictures. I, in my Jerusalem book, I've got a picture of it. Uh, it's still there. And when they, when they uncovered it, it, the stone stool, it had a, a, a shallow pan sitting right beside it right here that they said there was part of the bathroom system that they would use that to either dump something down like to drink, you know, like drink, you know, water run down the stool or put some kind of a powder in to cover, you know, whatever. But they had some kind of a, and there would be like a cesspit way deep that, that the stool would be used for. I mean, it was this stool in the house. It was right there. So nonetheless, when Nehemiah comes over, to, he gets there. This is, this is just gone. I mean, it's just, just a, and he says, I couldn't get through. I just had to go out of the valley and go up and go, oh my gosh, this is a disaster. And I do have a quote by Catherine Kenyon. Um, let me see where it's at. Uh, and I, I, there, this we could spend all night. I've got volume. Oh, that bottom of page two. Point seven, without the walls and the general city works. Now remember, what, 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 what spring is located right here, or right at the base of this, right there? The Gion Springs. That's where the Canaanites had a tunnel that ran out this way. Uh, the Hezekiah's tunnel ran. The Hezekiah cut through the, right to the bedrock here. Fantastic feet. And filled the Pool of Siloam up right here. You can walk through that. I've walked through it a couple of times. Uh, I think it's like three football fields long. Uh, but that water still flows today. So the Gion Spring was still... But with this destruction, this was the center... Remember how David got into the, into the city? Uh, Joab says, if we're going to take the city, you're going to have to use the water shaft. So he took a special, you know, SEALs team, Joab and his SEALs team. They went in there, found the exit, crawled up the shaft that the people used to get the water and opened the city gates and let David in, like their own, made their own Trojan horse story. And so he used the Gion Spring water system by David. David knew enough because he lived in Bethlehem two miles away, maybe five miles away. So he knew enough about the city and how to break into it. And so they did it, and that's how they took the system. That water is still running today. It, it's, it was this, but it was complete disaster. Catherine Kenyon writes, point B, the terraces, this would be the east side above the Kidron Valley, that supported the east side and protected and provided the waterworks lay in ruins. Yet, Catherine Kenyon wrote after her excavation of this area, the effect on Jerusalem was much more disastrous and far-reaching than merely to render the city defenseless. Now, see, we've been reading the book of Nehemiah for, you know, 2,400 years. And for years, people would talk about this, and we don't know if it's true, you know, we don't know. Well, they're over here excavating, and Catherine Kidron is excavating this area. It's called Area G. And she finds out this, and right here in the book, it says when Nehemiah got here, to, right before he's approaching Area G, it's like, he ain't going through there, and he had to go completely around because it was a total disaster. Well, now, in the 1960s, Catherine Kenyon is excavating it, and she goes, oh my gosh, it's a total disaster. 
The effect on Jerusalem was much more disastrous and far-reaching than merely rendered the city defenseless. The whole system of terraces down the eastern slope depended on retaining walls buttressed, buttressed in turn by the fill of the Nick's lower terrace <coughs> was ultimately depending on the town wall at the base forming the lowest and most substantial of the retaining walls. So when they would build it, they would build out like this, this one first, get that filled in, build the next one up, and when that started falling, it was just nothing left. When Nehemiah comes back to see this, well, he's not looking at it yet. He's not, Nehemiah has not seen this. <coughs> he's simply asking his brother, how are the exiles that have returned? How is the remnant of people doing that God is bringing back for his people, and how is the holy city? Is it looking good? I hear good things, had a lot of people go back, housing's progressing. They say, it's not good. They're, in, they're barely hanging on. The city, the walls, they have been rebuilt. The gates, they still got ashes, burnt woods from, from 586, from 140 years ago. We just can't do it. And we're get, being oppressed by all the provinces around us. No one wants, because once Jerusalem becomes the hub, once Jerusalem becomes a business center, it's going to be like, well, uh, how excited do you think Valley West Mall was when they built Jordan Creek Mall? It's like, oh, what a great idea. Let's expand. I mean, you think there's people probably, again, I don't know this firsthand, people at uh, Valley West Mall trying to undermine the plans of the Jordan Creek Mall? It's like uh, tear down their walls and uh, confuse the paperwork. It's like that's what's going on here. It's like they've got these, we're doing fine. And now Jerusalem, we want a part of the pie. Uh, there's not enough pie to go around. So no one wants this. And Nehemiah sees himself in the middle of God bringing the people back and reestablishing his city, his law, his people for the future, the salvation of the world. And yet, it's not getting done because of sometimes it's opposition, sometimes it's just plain neglect. Oh, page three. Go back to page three, the highlight. That's me standing in front of the stepstone structure at the bottom right there. And if you look, and this is going to come in later, I'm, I'm standing in the middle. You see how going straight up that stepstone structure at the top of that was a, uh, what is considered to be the Palace of David. It was a huge public building. And it's probably the fortress, possibly from the Canaanites that David took that turned into his palace and expanded on it. And then going down, it continues to go all the way. You can see it's still sloping down behind me, going down into the Kidron Valley. So that was the terrace. That's the area that, that Nehemiah could not get through and, that, and right below that is the Gion Springs. You see that sharp wall right there, that sharp corner in the back, right over my, it'd be my right shoulder? Part of that wall was built by Nehemiah and his people. Uh, you can see it, not in this picture. You can see the stones that are just kind of packed, just stones going like, say, let's say a half of the way up. But then on top of those stones are square or rectangular, nicely cut ashlar stones that were put on top of that by the Hasmoneans when they had more time. So what's going to happen right here, even when they rebuild this city, and I'm, I'm getting way ahead, they're not going to be able to go out here and build all this terrace right here, and the city wall should have gone out over here like this and gone around. They're not going to do that. They're just going to skip this right here. Forget all this. Leave it outside the wall. Just build right, build right up here. And it's, if the terraces were left outside here, and they just built the wall right up here. So that, that wall that you see right there, that was part of that just building up on the top, up on the, the ridge towards the top was where they were building at. Um, okay. Oh, boy. I got to wrap this up. Uh, 
there are some things I wanted to point out and have to do it next time. Uh, I wanted to point out point six right there because as Artaxerxes, our, and it'll fit in next time, Nehemiah is going to, Artaxerxes is going to ask, when he brings the wine, when Nehemiah brings the wine to Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes is going to say, what's wrong, little buddy? <laughs> no, sir, that's not his words. But he goes, he goes no, watch what he says. He had, to, he, had to, he had to be on familiar basis. First of all, he's, he's not attentive to his work, and Nehemiah, or Artaxerxes, realizes it. And then he says, why could I be? Uh, positive or in a good mood, that's not his words, when my city and the city of the sepulchres of my fathers lies in ruins. And, and Artaxerxes wouldn't have to ask, what city? But if he would ask, you know, what city? And why is it lying in ruins? Well, the fact is that this is 445. My city is lying in ruins. Why is that? Well, 20 years ago, some king in their first year of ruling says, stop building. I'm kind of bummed about that. And Artaxerxes says, well, who was that king? He doesn't say, I'm making this up. But that was Artaxerxes 20 years before. So Nehemiah is actually going to be complaining about one of Artaxerxes' policies. And Artaxerxes is going to go, well, he's going to actually say, well, what do we need to fix it? I, I've, I've settled most of my conflicts for the last 20 years. I don't see any reason why we can't build that city up. It'd be nice. So that's kind of what's going on. And I want to show you those references just because we've looked at them. But again, they're, they're meaningful here again. I want to read this to you just because I think this is <coughs> going way back. Babylon, Susa is the, is the winter place. They would also have a palace in Ecbectana. <coughs> and Josephus writes this. I find this very interesting. It's, it's extra biblical, but it's... It's in the framework of the scriptures. When I say extra biblical, meaning it's history outside of the Bible. And it's what Josephus says. And what he's talking about, he's talking about Daniel. And Daniel, uh, here it is. I, I, I'm on top of page 2, 4a, and I'm reading the underlying part of Josephus' quote. Now when Daniel was become so illustrious and famous on account of the opinion of men that he was beloved of God, and that would include Darius, who uh, had, not this Darius, but another Darius, the king of Babylon, uh, had him thrown the lions in. He built a tower at Ecbectana in Media. So you see, the Ecbectana. Daniel was in Babylon, had a vision in Susa, of himself being in Susa, but he had a tower, a citadel, that was Daniel's. Now remember how hot powerful Daniel was. He was around for a long time. He advised Nebuchadnezzar. It was the most elegant building and wonderfully made, and it still remained, and that's Josephus writing in 70 AD, or 72, 73, and preserved to this day. And to such as see, and, and to such as see it, so if you see it, it appears to have been lately built, and to have been no older than that very day when anyone looks upon it. The reason for that is they, they continue to take care of it. It's, it's not, he's not talking about miraculous or a miracle or a magic building, meaning they've taken care of this building since the days of Daniel. And here's why. 
He goes on, it's so fresh and flourishing and beautiful and no way grown old in so long a time. For buildings suffer, and here's, here's Josephus. This is what makes Josephus hard to read. Probably like listening to me teach. For buildings suffer the same as men do. They grow old as well as they. And by numbers of years, their strength is dissolved and their beauty withered. Okay, thank you, Josephus. Uh, now, the reason they, they still have that building looking good, now they bury the kings of Media, of Persia, and Parthia in this tower. Josephus says, Daniel's old citadel, his old office building, to this day, 70 AD. And he who is entrusted with the care of it was a Jewish priest, which thing is also observed till this day. So that's just interesting that, that, that's, that Daniel had a tower there in Ecbatana. Now watch this as we close down this little routine. The next line I've got written there, Ecbectana was where Cyrus's decree from 539 was found in Ezra chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, when Darius made a search to begin rebuilding the temple in 520. So remember, when Cyrus sent the people back, Daniel was still alive right at that time. He writes a decree in 539, Cyrus does, because Daniel worked for Cyrus. After working for the Babylonians, he worked for Cyrus. After having worked in the palace or in the royalty, and because he royalty part of Judea, in 539, Cyrus's decree to send the people back and rebuild the temple. They go back, they go back, but they stop building, and then Darius becomes the king in 520. Right here, 521, Darius becomes the king after the death of Cambyses, and uh, the Jews want to build. And they send a letter. They say we want to build, and the other people send a letter. Say well, they, they can't rebuild. They're lying. And you can see right here in uh, Ezra, and we read it, Ezra chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. Then Darius, the king, made a decree. And what decree did he make? A search was made in Babylonia throughout the whole land. Just check all the libraries. So someone says Cyrus made a decree that the Jews could build their temple in 539. That should be in an archive somewhere. In the house of the archives where the documents were stored, he made a decree. He wrote the paper, signed it, put his seal on, and he sent out a crew, sent out the staff. Go find this decree. The Jews say it's there. Samaritans don't want him doing it. The Jews say they've got permission from the king. And look at this. And where did they find it? And in Ecbectana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which was written a record in the first year, meaning it says a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be built. Then in the Bible, the text, it continues to talk about that decree. So they found written on a, uh, on a scroll. Not written on this decree right here. The Cyrus cylinder says this, the same thing <coughs> for all the nations. But an a official document in, in Ecbectana in the citadel, in the land of Media, exactly where Josephus describes Daniel having a citadel, and that's where they found the decree. They gave the Jews permission to then begin building in 520, and it is the same decree. They just found it, and that's just interesting uh, because we're talking about being in the citadel, the palace in Susa, the citadel in Ecbatana, citadel of Babylon. <coughs> okay, hey, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you taking time. Next time, we won't have class next week, but the next time we'll uh, read through that prayer that uh, Nehemiah is going to pray because he hears this and he's upset. And he's going to put God in remembrance that says, you know, you said you'd disperse us, but you said you'd bring us back. And I says, listen to my prayer. I, I'm praying this. And then he says, by the way, I was a cupbearer for the king, which means 
I can pray to God, but just like Ezra says, God, I'm going to go establish God's law, I've also got the ear of the king himself. So I, I can pray to the king of heaven, but I work for the king right here. I'll talk to the king himself. So he's, got, he's working on both ends, working on the spiritual and the natural, the temporal, and that's where we'll go after that. Okay, thank you for being here. I'll pray and we're done. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into these things. We ask that we would find direction for our own lives and encouragement to continue, to knowing that you've got a plan, that we need to be persistent and endure. But Father, we also do thank you for the chance to have the word of God spoken to us and have it preserved that we may see these things as real historical events that go from the alpha to the omega, the beginning to the end of, of your plan. And we do thank you for being, letting us be part of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for your time.